Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Jack Devaney. Jack is the principal engineer and architect of the Thorcon Molten Salt Reactor Power Plant and holds a BS and an MS in Naval Architecture and a PhD in Management Science. Jack's company, Thorcon, seeks to use shipyard construction technology to mass-produce inexpensive zero-emissions power plants to solve the twin problems of energy poverty and climate change. Today, we're going to be talking about Jack's most recently published book, Why Nuclear Power Has Been a Flop, a Modern Gordian Knot. Jack, it's a real pleasure having you on Decouple. Thanks for making the time. My pleasure. So, Jack, I like to kind of ambush my, my guests a little bit with a self-introduction. You have a kind of a long and storied career. I could get a couple small accolades out of the way there, but pretend you're having a casual conversation with someone who's really interested in chatting with you at a little lunch party. And, uh, you know, let us know a little bit about yourself. Well, I, I trained it, uh, as a naval architect at, at MIT. Uh, the plan was to design the next America's Cup boat, but it uh, didn't work out. When I graduated, it turned out the choice was go to Vietnam or take a deferred job. So I went to work for the U.S. Navy, one form or another, uh, worked for three different naval shipyards, ended up going back to my department at MIT, the naval architecture, basically worked for the Navy for 10 years. And I saw the Navy system up close and personal. It was, uh, it was a mess. And the upshot of the whole thing was you had all this paperwork. At the end of the day, the ships were extremely expensive, far, far more expensive than they should be, and in most cases didn't work. Well, I got fed up with that system, and I decided to seek my fortune in the tanker market. And one thing led to another, and the next thing I knew, I was in Korea building very large tankers. What I saw was just blew my mind. Physically, the Korean shipyards didn't look that different from the Navy shipyards. They have the same technology, but they're on different planets. They, the Korean productivity was orders of magnitude higher than the Navy productivity, and the ships mostly worked. Mm. They were built on schedule. If, you, if a ship was delivered a couple of weeks late, that was a disaster. More than a couple of weeks was unthinkable. Right. And uh, if a ship didn't perform, a uh, yard lost its customer. So it was a new world to me. Then late in life, I got interested in the Gordian Knot. And it didn't take very long to figure out that the only way to handle that was, was nuclear. But then when I got into nuclear, all of a sudden I found myself transported back to the Navy system. Right, right. Our problem is we build nuclear reactors the way the Navy builds ships. We right. need to build nuclear reactors the way the Koreans build ships. Now, you mentioned this term Gordian knot. I think we've all seen kind of beautiful Celtic imagery of this. But can you go a little bit more into what exactly you're speaking to when you, when you say that term? Well, it's a, the closely coupled problem of global warming and energy poverty. We still have close to a billion people, billion humans on this, on this planet that have no access to electricity. Another probably uh, half a billion that have at most sporadic access. We need a lot more electricity, but the way we make electricity right now means a lot more CO2. Uh, so that's the Gordian knot. How do you solve ener energy poverty and solve global warming? That's my definition of Gordian knot. Those are uh, two highly ambitious uh, projects to set yourself to. We're here to talk about your book. Again, the, the working title or the title now is Why Nuclear Power Has Been a Flop, A Modern Gordian Knot. Is that correct? 
I just I just think of it why why nuclear power has been a flop. Uh, the, the working title for a long time was Gordian Knot, but it turned into why has things not worked out? And my answer is a little bit different than most people's. And, and the problem is the, the nuclear uh, establishment. Uh, they're, the, they're the core problem. So what I really liked about your book is, you know, in the, in the beginning, one of the many things I liked about the book, I should say, is you start off elucidating the, the problem and kind of illustrating with some good graphs, the problem of energy poverty. When I read Bill Gates' book, How to Avoid a Climate Catastrophe, I, I really liked that he used this ter- the, the, he used the number 50 and was saying, listen, that's how many gigatons of CO2 equivalent we're putting into the atmosphere every year. If you come to me with a, you know, a new tech, a new solution, I ask you, what part of 50 is that going to take care of it? If for him, it, it helped understand the issue of scale and, and it made that understanding. Understandable, I think, to me, in, in ways in which I'm a, I'm a physician, I'm not an engineer, I'm coming at this, you know, gaining some numeracy in a specific topic takes time. But what I liked was you had some initial graphs, again, which which gave an idea of the scale of the problem. And I think that started off with our current uh, electricity capacity uh, of generation was something like 2,500 gigawatts. And, and can you just illustrate, if, is that true? And then what else we would need to get everybody up to a decent level of energy consumption and indeed what we need to further electrify everything for our climate goals. Yeah, we're talking just to get everybody up to a, a decent a electricity consumption in terms of quality of life. We're talking about doubling the amount of electricity we're currently making. And then if you start in decarbonizing stuff, well, things build up in a hurry. So it was, I think it was 2,500 at current. If we want to get everyone up to a European level of consumption, that's another 2,500. Can you go into some of the specifics though? You know, I think you said um, around electrifying certain processes, desalination, maybe even carbon capture and storage. That's where you're getting to your, your number, which is 10X of our current installed generation. A lot of it just decarbonizing the current fossil fuel markets, uh, transportation, uh, industrial processes, et cetera. You're very quick, quick, quickly up into seven, eight, nine, ten. And then you throw in population growth on top of that, and then you throw in these more aggressive decarbonization things, and then you throw something in for desal. It 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 builds up very quickly, and and uh, if you're really going to solve the problem, you're talking something like twenty five thousand gigawatts down the road. Yeah, because there's a lot of talk, I think, within the kind of climate concern circles of, you know, we have everything we need, you know, we just need to get started, you know, and I think a real underestimation of the scale of the problem. And, you know, I follow uh, the work of Václav Smil, who's, uh, you know, one of the world's premier experts in energy transitions. And I mean, at at times I throw my hands up in the air. I just think this is this is a lunatic's quest, really, when you look at those kind of numbers and and the, the timeframes we're trying to work with. But, you know, at least it's it's useful. And I like that your book laid out the scope of the problem. Let's dive into things a little bit more. I think in terms of the story that you tell, maybe the original sin is is uh, the linear null threshold hypothesis and how that led to our current regulatory framework, which took something that had been very successful. I think in the 60s, you're arguing that nuclear power was doing great. It was cost competitive with coal. Something went wrong there. But the underlying mechanism for that was linear null threshold, if I've read your book correctly. Can, can you uh, give us your, your take on how we got to accepting linear no threshold, which again, as a physician is really bizarre for me because the dose maketh the poison as, as a Paracelsus said, historically, that's kind of our guiding light in terms of understanding t- toxicology. Um, the LNT uh, flies in the face of that, but tell us a little bit about uh, LNT, how it came to be and, um, and why it's holding us back. The whole thing started shortly after World War II. 
when people became very concerned about uh, controlling nuclear weapons and in particular trying to get rid of nuclear weapons testing. The problem for the people who are worried about that is that the fallouts were uh, very low radioactivity dose rates compared to background. So you were adding just a trifle. I mean, in the worst year in the UK, they got 0.15 millisieverts. That's about 10% of background. And the pre-war prevailing assumption among the radiobiologists and the people that actually worked with radiation was that once you got down to a certain level, you, you just couldn't measure it. There was nothing that you could discern in terms of things. There was a, a kind of a level at which uh, the harm was being matched by uh, repair processes. Mm -hmm. But if you kept that kind of philosophy, then there was nothing really bad about the fallout in terms of health hazard. And uh, the people that wanted to fight the nuclear weapons testing had to come up with a weapon to do so. The book goes into some detail about the Rockefeller Foundation its machinations to a push LNT via a theory that there was going to be genetic harm. And that was based on some fruit fly experiments. They, they were motivated to, to, to push this theory because of, I think you were arguing because of uh, the guilt that they felt about having contributed to the weapons program. I think you had a story of a, one of the physicists from the Manhattan Project coming to uh, the Rockefeller Foundation saying, hey, we couldn't have done this without you guys. And that was a real kind yeah, of no, moment of moral reckoning for them. One thing I should say right now, Chris, is uh, the book is a, is a work in process, and uh, versions which get posted on the website reflect that. The version that's now on the website is quite different from the, the hard copy version that was printed some six months ago. And in fact, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a result of me learning. I've become something of a bug on nuclear history, and uh, I've learned some things that, that surprised me. One of them was that it's clear that the Rockefeller Foundation's motivation wasn't to protect oil. Uh, it wasn't big oil controlling the Rockefeller Foundation. In fact, the, 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 Rock, the foundation and big oil was very tenuous, the relationship, if there was any. But it was quite clear that, that they felt guilty because in funding theoretical physics in the 1930s, they had funded just about all the Manhattan Project greats. More importantly, and specifically, they had funded uh, Lawrence's cyclotron at, I think it was Berkeley, that was critical in the development of the bomb. And when Lawrence wrote a nice letter to the foundation thanking them for their support and pointing out that without it, there would be no bomb, well, that didn't sit well with the, the president and the trustees, and they realized that they had a responsibility to make sure that they controlled this horrible thing that they had helped create. And that's when they started playing games with genetics and, and uh, very successfully. The, the current version of the book lays that out. Now, you have a, a great section where you talk about statistical deaths and sort of killing people statistically. In medicine and in public health, we talk about quality of life adjusted years. It's very different if you know, everyone who is born will die. I heard a, a commentator, he was, he's someone who actually kind of defends fossil fuels, but you know, there's this assertion that one in five people are dying because of fossil fuels. And, and he was taking people to task because he was saying, you know, listen, we have to look at at life expectancy. And overall, yes, fossil fuels kill a lot of people with air pollution, but it's undeniable that increasing energy has extended lifespan. So it's not quite as simple as that. I mean, I'm someone who 
can see what fossil fuels have done in terms of, you know, extended lifespans, enabling modern buildings, healthcare, et cetera. But I think we need to phase them out. But it was an interesting point nonetheless. You go into this in a bit more detail. And I think that, that's what really lies at the core of, of LNT is, is these, these claims, these statistical calculations of m- massive deaths occurring from trivial releases if extended across a large enough population. Could you just give us kind of a, a quick summary of, of your take on LNT, some of its contradictions, um, and, and give our listenership a, a sense of, of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, you hear these people say, oh, well, uh, coal is killing 30,000 Americans a year. What they're really saying is that uh, coal increases the mortality rate by 30,000 people per year. But the question is how much? How, how much life is lost? I think one Bernie Cohen, my, one of my spiritual mentors, uh, estimated that it was like 23 days was the average loss of life expectancy for an American due to coal pollution. That number is, is, is very wiggly, but the point is that it gives us something to compare with. When you just talk about killing people, well, everybody's going to die. So the question is, is how soon, if you have a, a, a technology that reduces mortality, by how much does it extend life? And so the, the life expectancy becomes uh, the key metric, not how many people die, because we're all going to die. So in terms, again, of, of linear no threshold, I think most of my audience is, is quite familiar with the term and some of its contradictions. But can you just give us your your take on it? You you go, I think, in three or four chapters, you really deep dive the literature. You, you look at some of the key studies that um, you know have been used to claim it's true. And, and you look at some of the problems with the methodology. I think that's kind of an interesting question. You talk about um, the null hypothesis in relationship to the LNT. Could you could you go into that for the listeners? I mean, the book does go through a sample of the studies and hopefully a, a balanced sample. What you see is that time and time again, you see strong nonlinearities, uh, both in the lab tests and, and in high background radiation areas, just everywhere. Animal tests, even fruit flies, uh, despite the early idea that everything was linear. Well, that was based on very high dose rates. And when they tried to extend that down to even dose rates that are far higher than you would ever get in a, in a, in a reactor plant release, the linearity hypothesis just didn't, just didn't hold up. To me, the most impressive study was done in Kerala, India. And there you had uh, certain areas, there's very high background dose rates, as much as 70 millisieverts per year. This is due to the, the high quantity of thorium in the sand. And they, they looked at, uh, I think it was 1980 to 1995, looked at over 100,000 people. And they had a, a sample of people who only received two or three millisieverts per year. And they had other people who had received over 40 millisieverts per year. So 600 plus millisieverts in 15 years. And the people that had 600 millisieverts in those 15 years had a slightly lower cancer rate than the people that had two and a half millisieverts per year. So basically, there was, there was no effect, strong nonlinearity. Um, and uh, when you look at a nuclear power plant release, very rarely does the public ever get 40 millisieverts. That's the reason why in the, in the three releases that we've had, the only people who got more than 40 millisieverts, with very few exceptions, were the pe- first responders, plant workers, in the case of Chernobyl, liquidators. But the public never saw 40 millisieverts, the same dose rate that showed no increase in cancer in, in India. So 
the whole idea that a, a power plant radiation release is a catastrophe just isn't supported by the data. No, I mean, in terms of that data, it seems like the researchers are under tremendous pressure to make their data fit um, a linear model. And often that'll lead to things like omitting certain subsets of the data, reclassifying various doses um, in order to, you know, it just seems like they're, they're starting with a hypothesis in place that they're trying to prove rather than having that more objective uh, scientific process um, of accepting, you know, if, if there's a contradictory finding, it should knock your theory off the wall, right? I mean, there's so many studies, right? And, and <clears throat> I've read through several of them. You know, it's, it's hard to get your bearings, but when you look at the underlying methodology and you find these kind of patterns in terms of the pro LNT literature um, and some of, some of the manipulations that are being done, again, in terms of re-cohorting groups and things like that, it, it's, it was interesting to see the mechanism by which this orthodoxy is, is being held in place. Yeah, and what's interesting is, is the nuclear establishment is a, a strong supporter of LNT. Even when their own studies, uh, either AEC or DOE studies, they come up with numbers that are contradictory to LNT. Uh, then they, they either suppress it or try to avoid it. I think early on, uh, AEC decided that, oh, well, we've got such a perfect system, we're never going to have a release. So who cares what the model is for how, what the harm of a release is, because we're not going to have one. And so in 1959, they blithely accepted LNT. But the problem was that put them in a bind, because if you, if you believe LNT and you can uh, combine it with a whole bunch of, of very conservative assumptions about where the, uh, what the weather is and how big the release is and et cetera, et cetera, you end up killing thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people from a release. So once they, they accepted LNT and they accepted this super worst, 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 worst case, uh, they were in a bind. Now uh, we, we can't have a release. So we got to come up with an argument that says we're not going to have a release. So we do this uh, probabilistic risk analysis and come up with numbers like one in a million reactor years, blah, 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 and basically tell people why. The probability of a release is so low, you don't even have to worry about it. Well, it's a really stupid lie because it's it's clearly false. It was proven false at, at, at Three Mile Island, it was proven false at Chernobyl, proven false at, at Fukushima. So people lose, properly lose trust in these guys. And I mean, I think the, the most hilarious incident you brought up to illustrate that, because, you know, they're basically trying to identify all the potential threats that could lead to a, a core casualty or a meltdown, as you were saying, and then trying to give them a, a probability of occurring. But uh, you talk about the Browns Ferry incident. Can you uh, can you tell our listeners about that and how that would be a hard thing to calculate a probability for? Yeah, well, what, what they do is they, they uh, I used to teach probability at, at, at MIT, so I'm not anti-probability. I wrote a book on Bayesian decision theory. But the problem is that you've got to have data to start computing probabilities or estimating probabilities. And in many cases, we don't have data. Uh, so these probability risk analysis have, Sometimes they use models to try to come up with the numbers. Sometimes they just put guys in a room and ask them, what's the probability of, of this or that, which has never happened. Of course, the answers come back different by, by, by factors of a thousand, but somehow those, those numbers get into the overall tree. These trees can only do a very, very small number of combinations of, of events that could cause a thing. So you're bound to, to not include everything. In fact, all the, the, the releases we've had so far involved a sequence that wasn't in the PRA, the probabilistic risk analysis. 
and a classic example of that is Brown's Ferry. Uh, in this case, uh, uh, a technician was sealing off a, the cables going into the cable spreading room, which has to be separated um, in case you get a, a release. You don't want to get it into the control room. Um, so he was sealing the uh, thing with a poly, I think it was a polyurethane foam. And to check to make sure that the thing was properly sealed, <laughs> what he did was he took a candle and looked at the flame. And if the, if the, if the candle flame was going in uh, to this area, he knew he hadn't, hadn't a complete seal. Problem was the flame hit the polyurethane uh, foam, which burst into flame. And the next thing you knew, the things got out of control. Uh, the guys had to scramble to get power to the control room because they lost all the normal power. But, you know, where would that be in a, a fault tree? What would be the probability that you would put on that particular event? And I'll tell you, it'll, ne it'll never happen now because we have those little uh, candles in our, or not candles, we have lights on our iPhones or whatever. But he was actually trying to test for a draft. It wasn't so he could see in the dark. Yeah, it was, right. okay, so maybe, maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe it's still conceivable. There's not an app for that yet. Well, the thing about it is that, it, that you concentrate on this uh, fault tree and you ignore things like uh, maybe we should have used a, a fire resistance insulation. You yeah. know, so simple common sense engineering gets buried in all this risk analysis. The whole design is aimed at meeting the number. If the NRC says you have to have a number of one in uh, a million or whatever their number they come up with, you've got to meet the target. And that becomes the goal of the design, not uh, smart engineering. And one example that I found to be a little bit worrisome, actually, was uh, you were talking about, um, you know, our wet storage, uh, our used fuel uh, pools were filling up because of the lack of uh, the creation of a centralized facility, whether that was, you know, Yucca Mountain or any of the other potential storage options, um, and that they used PRA to justify dense packing of uh, spent, uh, spent fuel pools. Yeah, I mean, can you, can you talk about that? Because that actually, as an advocate, you know, that, that was a little bit alarming to me in terms of you know, I know that the risk of these something bad happening to these pools is very low, but I mean, if we pack them densely, can you can you talk about what what that whole story was about? Yeah, well, the when the when the the spent fuel pools were built to handle, you know, maybe five six years of 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 of, of fuel, which would cool for four or five years, and then you would pull it out and you could air cool it and uh, take it to a, a reprocessing or a, a central repository. But of course, reprocessing got kiboshed and the central repository never, never got past the politics. So a, uh, these spent fuels pools started filling up. Well, no problem. What, what you do is you, you put a, a dry cast storage uh, pad on your, uh, at the reactor. But this, is, this adds the cost of about 0 0.05 cents per kilowatt hour. And the utilities didn't want to pay that cost. Uh, so they, uh, they, 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 they petitioned the NRC to do several things. One, one was a, uh, uh, approved dense packing original, the original plan in the spent fuel pools was that, well, what happens if the, the water, a uh, dries out? A lot of these spent fuel pools, uh, are above ground as, as at Fukushima, a, uh, so the, the plan was, well, we'll keep these, uh, fuel elements far enough apart so that a, if the spent fuel pool drains, the air cooling alone will keep the uh, cladding below the temperature, which will burst uh, due to the pressure buildup inside the, uh, uh, the fuel pins. It was a good plan. But then when uh, 
they got into this bind and, and the utilities didn't want to go to dry cast storage because it added a trifle to the cost of electricity. Uh, they went to the NRC and the NRC came back with a PRA that said there was oh, only a one in a million. All, notice one in a million always comes up. A chance of, of a release if they did what's called dense packing. Dense packing means that you quadruple the uh, capacity of your spent fuel pool by encasing the fuel elements in, in a neutron absorber so you don't have any criticality problems. But at the same time, now you no longer have air cooling. So if the water drains, you're screwed. But of course, it's only going to be a one in a million chance uh, because the PRA says it's a one in a million chance. It's really stupid because the cost of, of dry cast storage is nothing. And then you're taking this risk of having a big release. Now, of course, a big release is not as bad as, as, as people think it is, but still, why take the chance? Especially, you know, you know what the, the public relations problem. So I'm with the, the Von Hipples on this one. Do get rid of dense packing. So I, I think one of the lines you had was that probabilistic risk assessment favors fragile, complex designs over robust, simple systems. And that in some ways, this isn't actually making things safer because there's so many more, you know, you add on twice or three times as many pumps and valves and you just add new kind of failure modes. Is this, is this different than say how like the airline industry approaches uh, risk assessment? Well, I'm, I, I don't know what, what the airlines uh, or the FAA does, but basically, the, the, yes, it, it is different. For one thing, uh, the airlines go through physical tests. You, you get a, a, a plane certified by flight testing it. And during that flight testing, you do a lot of crazy stuff that you would never do during normal operations. And that's the way to go. Uh, I, I'm a fan of small modular reactors, not because they're small. You don't want to be small in this business. Small is not beautiful. But you can test them. And by testing them, I mean really ring them out. If you have a reactor that, that, that costs $4 billion, uh, nobody really wants to put that thing in a place where it's really stressed because that's a lot of money. But if you have a 250-megawatt uh, modular reactor, you can take your, one of these modules, put it at Hanford or someplace, uh, and you know really put, it, put, the, put stress testing on it. That means bypassing uh, some of the layers of, of defense to make sure that the, the, the backup layers work. And that's what basically the airlines do, or, and, and that's what we should be doing. You know, I mean, we'll get to this later, but I was, I was, when I'm thinking about advanced nuclear and what it's going to take for it to actually get up off the ground, we're going to talk about the history of regulation and how it's made it near impossible to get a, a new design working. But, you know, it seems to me like it would take an international collaboration on the scale of something like ITER for fusion, like that you need to have a central place to run these tests and multiple countries working together. But let's, let's not jump there just yet. We are going to, we're going to get prescriptive at the end, because I think you're someone who's given this enough thought that you do have a kind of a plan or a vision of a way forward. But let's, let's dive deeper into the problem. We've kind of summarized uh, the problem with LNT and, um, <clears throat> and PRA, uh, probabilistic risk assessment, but let's talk about another uh, mumbo jumbo here, uh, another acronym, um, ALARA, um, as low as reasonably achievable. Before we get there, though, nuclear power used to be cheap, right? It used to be competitive with fossil fuels, even when fossil fuels were dirt cheap. So I don't think a lot of people know that history. Can you can you um, lay the, the ground for us there in terms of what things looked like in the 60s when nuclear was entering into a market that was, I think, as you argue, very competitive? It, it's, a, it's a remarkable story. In the late mid-late 60s, the price of oil was at a real price of oil was at an all-time low. 
people were buying oil in, in the Middle East for a penny a liter. That's what crude was costing in, in the Middle East. And because tankers were doubling in size every few years, et cetera, the landed cost of crude in the West was $1.50 a barrel. The oil was so cheap that it was pushing into coal. Coal was, was basically king in, in terms of power generation. But with all this cheap oil coming on, they were pushing the price of coal down and they were pushing coal out of, of, of the electricity market. That really surprised me because it just seems crazy to be burning oil for electricity. But I mean, I think that France was was burning quite a lot of oil because they don't actually have coal nationally, right? And that led to their nuclear buildup. But sorry, don't let me interrupt. Keep keep laying the scene well, first. Thing. What happened was, of course, coal responded. They had all kinds of big drag lines and long wall and everything they could do to, to th push things down. But the combination was that you were looking in the mid-60s at the most cutthroat competitive market that you could ever imagine. And this is the market that nuclear, which was nascent, was just starting down a big, big, long learning curve, jumped into and did successfully. So you had to be down to around 2.7 mils per kilowatt hour in order to compete with coal. Uh, that's about less than three cents in, in, in current dollars. Wow. And this was a, a fledgling industry, and it was kind of iffy. Uh, but then all of a sudden, Qaddafi comes along, and one thing leads to another. Next thing you know, the price of oil has gone up by a factor of 15, real price. Uh, so now we, all these guys who took this chance, rather, rather aggressive chance on nuclear, a uh, chance I wouldn't have done if I were them, they all look like profits. And of course, demand for electricity in the late 60s was growing at 7% per year. So looking at that growth rate, and now we have a boom in both coal and nuclear, and everybody jumps on. Everybody wants to, to a, have a nuclear plant. I think in one, one year, 66 or 67, we ordered something like 30% of what the current demand was in the country at the time. And the economics, even the, the antis recognized the economics. They, they were really worried about nuclear because it was so cheap. JFK, I think, campaigned on building a thousand gigawatt reactors in the states. I think that the vision in, in many places was, you know, not necessarily electrify everything, but that electricity should be nuclear. Certainly, that was the case in France under the Mesmer plan. But I heard as well JFK, and probably that'd be the, the right time frame, was talking about building a thousand nuclear plants by the year two thousand. I mean, that wasn't part of you know within his mandate, but it was uh, a vision that that he had. It was the number one plank in the Democratic platform in JFK's election campaign. Wow. Okay. <laughs> In fact, big government Democrats love nuclear. And one of the things they did is they threatened the utilities. They said, look, if you guys don't get, get on the nuclear train, uh, we're going we're gonna to set up some public utilities to compete with you, and we'll, we'll wax your, your rears with nuclear. Because it's so cheap. They thought it was cheap, and it was cheap. At it the was time. cheap at the time. Okay. But what happened was that when uh, the oil price boomed, all of a sudden, there was this boom, and everybody needed to get a, a new coal plant or a new nuclear plant. And whenever a market goes into boom, uh, you lose control of your costs. This happens everywhere. It happens in the, in the oil patch. I, I spent some time in the oil patch at least twice in my life. Each time when you had a boom, the costs rise towards price. It happens in shipbuilding every 10 years. And uh, so both coal and nuclear lost control of their costs. In step, the, the cost rose rapidly. But uh, when the crash came in 1979, not because of Three Mile Island, but because of the Iranian Revolution, 
uh, price of oil jumping again and sending the world into a recession. Besides, all the growth rates had dropped drastically due to the increase in cost of electricity, the real cost of electricity. What normally happens in, in a boom and bust thing is that after the vendors get their act together uh, in this ensuing slump, you get rid of all the weak sisters, you cut your costs back, et cetera, and eventually find out what the real cost of this gadget or, or service is. And that happened to coal. Coal got its costs under control. And in the 1990s, the coal was as cheap as it, pretty much as cheap as it ever was, despite all the, in, the increase in regulation. But it didn't happen to nuclear because during that 70s, when the prices costs were, were galloping up, the regulation was matching it. Under ALARA, as low as regionally achievable means, really means says, what can you afford, sir? Yeah. If you can afford it, then you have to do it. And of course, the, the regulatory ratchet only goes one way. So at the end of the boom, nuclear had these super high costs and couldn't recover because the regulatory limits just don't go back down like, uh, like, like a normal market would. And I mean, tying that into LNT, that's because with this concept of there is no safe release, there's no safe dose possible, then you can regulate it into infinity, essentially. Yeah, I'm, I, I like to avoid no safe uh, dose. That, that's a trap that we've fallen into. If you try to argue for a threshold, you're going to get screwed because you got to pick a number, say the number is 50 millisieverts per year. And below that, there's absolutely no, no harm. Mm-hmm. Well, I can shoot that argument down and right. I'll, I'll walk you back to zero. But if you pick a, a strongly nonlinear thing, you get a function that matches both what happens at high dose rates and what happens at low dose rates in the experiments. So I argue for a, a strongly nonlinear dose response, but I don't argue for a threshold. Right. And that, that's your, is that your sigmoid um, no threshold? Is that what you're, yeah. you're proposing? I picked the logistic curve, but you can pick other curves. But the point is that if you agree with the false dichotomy, it's either linear or there's a threshold, you're going to lose. So let's let's talk a little bit more about um, that regulatory ratchet and, and kind of what happened in real terms. You've laid out sort of the economics of it, but what did that what did that look like on the ground in terms of um, these increasing regulations at the at the power plant level? I mean, early on, you you were talking about this parallel you were seeing between the U.S. naval shipyards and the Korean shipyards. So how, how has some of this regulation uh, driven up costs and, and affected? Um, I think, you know, we're going to be having uh, returning guest Mark Nelson on to talk about what went wrong at Vogel. But I think you do touch on that a little bit with a, with a key part at Vogel that, you know, because of a, of a problem with both with regulation and just with the quality of manufacture and, and oversight, um, you know, nuclear just spiraled out, out of control. Do you have any concrete examples you could share? Uh, good question. I think it's, it's, it's more just everything builds. Off the top of my head, I, I don't have a, a good precise example. Here's the problem. The regulator has a monopoly in, in the way we set things up. In the old systems, if you were building a coal power plant, all you had to do was convince a local politician by fair means or foul. And if you couldn't convince them to accept your plant, well, you went next door. And, but the uh, nuclear plants don't have that next door. So there's no competition among the regulators. And so at the same time, you're telling the regulator that, hey, approve this plant. Now, you're not getting any benefits from that plant, no matter how much carbon-free, uh, safe, cheap electricity that plant creates. You see none of the benefits, but if that plant has a problem, uh, you own it. And that means that what you really want to do is not approve anything. But 
that's tempered by the fact that if you don't approve anything, you won't get any applications. Right. And so the game becomes keep the applications coming in. But once you get that ap applicant in, uh, don't approve him or at least don't approve him for as long as you possibly can. And of course, in the American system, this is exacerbated by the fact that the applicant pays the NRC to review his application. It's something like $300 a man hour. So it just builds up. Uh, I don't think there's any single thing. I mean, you could look at the guillotine double break as as a classic example of. And so what? What exactly? That's a pipe that breaks in two spots. It, and the, the way they look at, at LOCA, loss of cooling accident. Yeah. They they, they postulate that uh, in the main steam and the main uh, coolant line, a section of it just disappears right. instantaneously. Yeah. All right. Design your plant to, to handle that. Well, the problem is that we can't simulate that because steel can't break that way. Mm -hmm. it, just that's, it's, it's just the characteristics of the physics of steel. And when you postulate this double-ended guillotine break, uh, now you have all kinds of pipe whip restraints. The spray shoots out. You've got a very rapid coolant loss that you have to handle, and that forces you into a whole bunch of unrobust uh, startups for diesels and that sort of thing. So you have this impossible uh, casualty that, that's very costly. So if you want one single example of, yeah. of, of things, then the, the double-ended guillotine break. There's been movements from time to time to get that out of the regulation, but they never quite make it. And that, that's what, again, leads to this like highly complex, fragile system around an imagined problem. Like a problem is literally physically not and again, just from what I'm understanding, it's like taking, I guess, like a cigar cutter and cutting a cigar in two places or moving the middle bit. Steel just doesn't operate that way. I mean, you're the engineer, you're the, the shipbuilder here. Um, so what's what's fascinating to me here is we go from this this heyday, you said, where, you know, JFK was promising a thousand reactors. That was the, the main platform of the Democratic Party. And what we're talking kind of 10 years later, um, we're in, we've gone through the boom type and time and we're already into this kind of bust cycle where nuclear has has priced itself out of being competitive and this is all happening well before tmi um and indeed no new nuclear plants are commissioned i mean i guess you know vogel and and summer happened in the 21st century but for the rest of the 20th century nothing new was commissioned after what 74 yeah last plant was ordered in 74 but until you got into the late 90s or i guess almost into 2000 so that's a that's a ten year period where this whole thing played itself out. Because you think, I mean, the, I think a lot of the modern thinking on nuclear is, hey, it's so slow, it's it's kind of like just glacial and how it moves along. But you had so many plants getting built, people making whacks of money because it was so cost competitive. Alara coming in, regulatory ratchet, prices going through the roof, and then hey, this is no longer economic. We're going to run this stuff into the ground, but we're not going to build anything new. It's it's a wild story. Like it's, I mean, again, reading on this, it's hardly it's hardly even believable. Let's move on a little bit and talk about how the nuclear industry responded to this. Because I think, um, you know, I've had Brett Kugelmass on the podcast. He's highly critical of, of the nuclear establishment and the nuclear industry. What did they do in the face of pressures around um, the changes in, let's say, in, in dosing with LNT or with Alara? Is this something that they resisted or did they kind of merrily go along with it? How did the, uh, the nuclear industry and the nuclear sector respond to uh, these really massive changes? Well, after 1980, uh, really after 1975, when everything dried up, they didn't see any future in, in nuclear electricity. At the same time, you had, you had this kind of military complex that had built up. The, the national labs, I mean, the national labs are, 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 are $20 billion a year business, and they needed a, a, a reason for existence uh, after they were no longer making the bomb. 
obvious problem they could solve is nuclear waste. So we all of a sudden, the big problem was cleanup. And we're spending $2.5 billion a year upriver from where I am cleaning up Hanford. The problem is that the dose rates at Hanford are lower than they are in, in Finland, a lot lower on average. So how do you justify that? The only way you can justify that is with LNT. So now the nuclear establishment, in order to have these cleanup problems and, and waste problems, had to be a proponent of, of, of the hazards of LNT and, and, and low-dose low radiation. Otherwise, there's, there's no point in doing all this. It's a waste of money to do all this cleanup. So uh, the establishment became a strong believer in LNT in order to uh, extract uh, tens of billions of dollars a year from the taxpayer. I have to say that the guys at the labs that I met are decent, hardworking people, and most of them went into the business because they, they really wanted to save the world. But they've been caught up in a system which uh, forces them to worry about next year's funding, and next year's funding depends on these uh, bogus problems. I think Tumors Creek was uh, one of the most poignant examples from your book of you know the insanity and the wasted uh, resources that are going into um, this kind of nuclear fear. Could you just tell us the story of, of Tumors Creek? Yeah, well, uh, Tumors Creek, I think it was at the Idaho National Lab. Uh, they were moving a, a cast of water from one of the spent fuel pools. One of the spent fuel pools was a, a different kind of pool. But anyway, it was regarded as radioactive, this water, even though it was just uh, next to... Uh, fuel elements and when they were moving it around with a forklift it was supposed to be drained this this particular canister but it wasn't completely drained and so they dribbled some of the water on the pavement for something like a half a mile and when this horrible thing was discovered they they decided that the only way to solve the problem was dig a, a, a half mile long trench take all the material in that trench and somehow put it in a approved a disposal site and then they filled it in with some phosphate mine tailings uh, that were currently were used all the time in, in Idaho for making roads and stuff. It turns out the phosphate tailings were more radioactive than the stuff that they removed. At, at enormous cost, yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's just wild, that, that story. Uh... There, there's, 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 there's example after example. Many of them are much more costly than, uh, than Tumors Creek. Well, in terms of the kind of one-way regulatory ratchet here, I think, you know, the response of the uh, the Japanese after Fukushima to lower their safe thresholds, you know, even further on on food and water, for instance, to, to rates that were something like 10 times lower than even in the EU, um, you never you never come back from that. It's, you know, you can't really turn the, the ratchet back the other way. And, you know, part of what your book's kind of arguing for is that we need to do that. I mean, how how do you see us moving that way beyond just public education? Well, the first thing, you've got to get the nuclear establishment educated. And as long as the nuclear establishment is telling everybody that these dose rates are, are, are so dangerous that we need to spend billions of dollars to get from three millisieverts per year down to two millisieverts per year. <laughs> I mean, it's the nuclear establishment that told people how dangerous uh, these low dose rates are. And, of course, we confirm it by uh, compensating people for background dose rate exposures. That happened in the, in the downwinders from the nuclear tests. Right. It's, it's happening right now at Fukushima where uh, people, a couple of guys that they have exposures that are below background, they worked at Fukushima during the uh, casualty. And they're getting uh, compensated for, or their family is because they died of cancer. The, the test was 
if you received 50 millisieverts, I remember the exact number, during your employment and you died of cancer within a certain period of time, you're automatically compensated. Well, people read that is and did. The headline said, Japs admit that uh, Fukushima radiation rates are, are, are mortal. Right. Uh, so you start with the establishment, but the establishment is feeding at the public trough, and that feeding depends on low dose rates being dangerous. You know, and this, I think, even extends into the workforce quite a bit. I was uh, talking with someone recently about nuclear advocacy and how, you know, my thinking around the, the workers within the sector being kind of natural advocates because they understand nuclear energy, what it's the good that it does, um, and they have a better understanding of, of radiation and its real risks. And they said, no, 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 hold on a second. A lot of nuclear workers are absolutely terrified of radiation. And it's partially because of this kind of choreography they go through um, to avoid like the most minimal, minimal you know, below background dose rates of, you know, put the booty on here. Oh, don't step across that line. You got to do this first, go through a gazillion procedures, you know, to, to get around again, these really insignificant dose rates, just doing that, you know, and this, this friend of mine, who's very well educated on the topic and is a, a you know, relative risk uh, educator when she went to visit the, uh, the Swiss uh, nuclear fuel repository and had to go through some of these same sort of choreographies, as I call them, you know, it, it gets into your head as uh, psychologically, I think that, Hey, this stuff must be so dangerous if we're going to these extreme lengths and I can't, you know, put my booty on the other side of that line you know, <laughs> or, you know, or what, right. An alarm will go off and you know, it's, there's a whole psychology to it that I think must be fairly pervasive within the sector. Well, in, at Argonne, uh, they measure people going in and out of some of the buildings. And if it's raining and you're going to this building, uh, you have to wipe your shoes off or you'll set off the alarms. And even then, if you have the wrong kind of soles, you'll still set the alarm off. What they're really measuring is is the alpha particles in in rainwater. You know, it's it's just nuts. But I think it's it's a result of the need to have a problem, and that's why we got ourselves into this bind. As long as the the nuclear establishment is going to perform do this kind of behavior, you're never going to educate the public. Right, right. You got to lead by example. I think, right. So, you know, in the, in the time we have left here, let's let's talk a little bit about your kind of prescription or, or what you see as, as the way forward. Um, you are the, I think it was the principal architect um, behind the Thorcon uh, idea. You're in the sector, you're trying to do something. Um, what needs to change for, for the concept that you have to be viable to get off the ground um, and for nuclear in general? I would like to be proven wrong, but I just don't see it happening in the, in the U.S. or EU because of all these these things we've been talking about. To me, the only possibility is to find a country that knows it needs a lot more electricity. I mean, a lot more, I mean, multiples more, and it needs it very quickly. And it realizes that its choice is, is nuclear or coal. And uh, have a country that, that understands that in order for them to have all the benefits of nuclear, uh, they have to take a fresh look at uh, all these problems we've been talking about and have to have the guts to be able to say to the NRC and IAEA and, and the nuclear establishment, take a hike. We'll figure out the problem for by ourselves. Uh, I think that's the only hope. And is that is that conceivable? I mean, we've been talking, I think, at like national level regulation, but globally with the IEA, um, you know, I think they have a lot of weight behind them. Is it is it possible for a smaller country to, to say, hey, stuff it, we're going to do things our way? Um, you know, obviously, the, the whole fuel cycle is highly complex. 
Um, there's lots of international treaties and regulations. Is that is that a viable possibility, you think? Is that conceivable if there was the leadership in country? I think so. If you have the right, the right leadership, the one thing you'll find out is that uh, uh, somebody will sell you the fuel. And by the way, under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which uh, everybody, uh, uh, almost everybody signed, all, every country, every signatory uh, has the right to uh, enrich fuel and reprocess fuel. And the U.S. has, has signed that treaty. So it's, it's just a matter of leadership. Whether Thorcon or, or anybody else will find that leadership, I can't tell you. And in terms of you know your ideas around actually building test reactors, getting rid of PRA, um, largely probabilistic, probabilistic risk assessment, you know again when I was reading your book that just was something that came to my mind. I'd done an episode on what I called the uh, fusion energy delusion, uh, but we talked a lot about ITER and that, and it just seems like there there should be a sort of transnational um, testing site even for for some of these advanced um, these advanced concepts because. They are going to require a lot of a lot of tweaking to to sort of figure them out. There, you know, there's been test reactors in the past that have operated in some of the principles. I think that that Thorcon is, but um, do you see any possibility there for for that kind of collaboration? Transnational, um, highly doubtful. But uh, here's a, here's some breaking news: Thorcon is making progress in Indonesia, and we actually have a, a, a test site for the demo plant being looked at right now. Breaking here on Decouple once again. Okay, well, Jack, I think uh, I think we've kind of wrapped things up pretty well. Um, is there anything else you wanted to touch upon, or any other kind of parting thoughts again on on the future? Right, I've asked guests in the past to sort of, in broad strokes, kind of illustrate what what they'd like to see as a path forward. I think you've largely done that. But if there's anything else you'd like to add, this this is your moment. Well, yeah, the only thing I'd say is that uh, the book is a is a work in progress. So if you if you if if, if you're interested in the book, download a more recent one. Do not buy the book. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a free uh, free download. Um, you just have to, I think, register on your site. Um, and again, I, I thoroughly endorse I this. I think it's called GordianNotBook.com. Yeah, GordianNotBook.com. I, I thoroughly endorse the book. I've read just about every treatise, you know, general treatment of nuclear power out there. Um, lots of really new and exciting ideas and, and very well written, Jack. So thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast. Um, and I hope to have you on again to maybe deep dive one of the... Uh, the, the many elements within the book that we didn't get to touch on today. Sounds good. All right. Bye for now. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys. <laughs>